Um, this evening we are going to continue in the book of Philippians. It's quite nice, it's not as warm tonight, it's still roasting. Could really do with some rain, some clouds, so it's not as hot as this. But I don't feel like I'm going to pass out today, so we're all good. Um, we're just going to jump straight into our passage. Um, just to recap, last week we looked at the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 1 and we were looking at joy. We were looking at the joy that Paul had despite the awful circumstances that he found himself in. We looked at how he cared for, how he loved, how he prayed for the Philippians and the special relationship, the friendship that he had with them. And there are really important themes that I think are developed in these next verses as we move on. So let's just crack on and let's read that. Uh, We'll be Philippians chapter 1, reading from verses 12 to 26. And the passage reads, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here eh, for the defence of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that... I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is in my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. For, uh, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Lord, would you open our hearts and would you speak to each one of us? Amen. Are we going with this? We good? Cool. So there's kind of this section breaks up really nicely um, into three sections, three different ways that the gospel is advanced through the circumstances that Paul finds himself in. We explore quite deeply the circumstances, his imprisonment, how he got there, what the realities of that were like for him last week. <coughs> we focused on the fact that Paul would endure any hardship that he would have to face for the purpose of the gospel. 
And we also focused on the fact that he was full of joy. What brought him joy? The care shown to him by other Christians. That Philippians had sent a messenger to encourage him and to minister to him. And that, he was, and that they genuinely cared about him. Next, we move into this passage, these verses. And the first thing we're going to look at is how Paul's chains advanced the gospel. The fact that he was in chains, the fact that he was in prison, and how he used that. We'll just read those three verses. I want, you to, uh, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. As I was thinking about this, the first thing that came to my mind was Lord of the Rings. You know, nobody's quite quick. We'll, we'll get the link. But the whole story of Lord of the Rings, we've got this little hobbit guy called Frodo that is entrusted with this ring. And he has to go on this big, massive journey to go and throw the ring that has all the power. If it falls into evil hands, the whole world will be destroyed, it will all be dark. Um, so the only answer was for him to go right into the middle of the darkness, throw this ring into the lava, and woo, evil's destroyed, and it's all great, and it's all fantastic. Good versus evil, eventually the good guys win, it's great. It's a really awesome story. If you haven't seen it, it's well worth nine hours of your life to watch the three films back to back in one go. I promise you, you will not regret it. The place in the middle of the enemy territory is called Mount Doom. And I want you to imagine that Mount Doom, the lava that Paul, it, Paul that Frodo has to throw the ring into, is Rome. So Rome is the centre of the ancient world, just as Mount Doom was the centre of uh, Middle-earth? Yeah, Middle-earth, that's right. And Paul's desire more than anything was to go to Rome and to be a missionary in Rome. Don't think of Frodo now every time that you think of Paul. But his desire more than anything was to go and preach in Rome. Why? Because it was the centre because Rome was the key, and Paul knew if I can get to the epicenter, if I can get in there and if I can plant Jesus at the centre, boom, millions are going to come to faith, because we're going to get right at the heart, we're going to get right to the middle of the kingdom, and if we can see people see Jesus in all his glory there, it's going to blow up, it's going to be incredible. Acts 19 Paul says, after Jerusalem, I must go to Rome. In Romans 1, he says, So, as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. Get ready, Rome, because Paul is coming. Paul is coming with the message of Jesus. But we know that God's got a bit of a sense of humour. So Paul does end up in Rome, just... Not as the preacher he expected to go to Rome as. He ended up in Rome as a prisoner. And he could have written, we spoke about this a little bit last week, but he could have written a whole letter about his imprisonment, feeling sorry for himself. But he wanted to talk about Jesus. So what we see there 
as he says, he sums up his circumstances as what has happened to me. That's what he says. That's how he addresses his time in prison. I don't know about you, but I'd be freaking out. I'd be going nuts and telling him all the crazy stuff that was going on. But to Paul, it was just, nah, this stuff's happened. This stuff, this journey to get to Rome, the ship doors, the shipwreck, and all this stuff is just stuff that's happened. If you read Acts 21 to 28, you see this sort of stuff. It begins with Paul's illegal arrest at the temple in Jerusalem. He'd become something of this religious, political uh, focal point. And he asked to be heard in front of Caesar. He had a right to be heard in front of Caesar. So he went, he was shipwrecked on the way. Spent three months in Malta. There's probably worse places to go and spend three months. But he eventually got to Rome. I don't know about you, but if I was trying to make a journey to get somewhere, spending three months shipwrecked somewhere and all this stuff, I would count it as a failure. I would say, yeah, I guess I got here, but it took a lot longer. It took a lot out of me. It was a bit of a crazy journey, but not to Paul. Paul's still just this cheery guy that's full of joy. Because he found so much joy in spreading the gospel. In this verse 12, using the words to advance the gospel. The word advance in this context comes from kind of a Greek military word. So it really is, as you think of soldiers advancing, something tactical, something that's done by a unit, something that's organized. That's what this is. This isn't just a random, let's see who we can find. And this is strategic planning. This is doing something with a clear purpose and a way of doing it. It refers to the army engineers who would go before the troops and they would open up the way for new territory. So there were people that would go, that would look ahead, that would see how we're going to go. And Paul, instead of finding himself disheartened by his situation and the things that were going on, he started to see new areas of ministry develop for him. And that's how the gospel got to Philippi in the first place, the people that he's writing this letter to. You follow the map of where Paul went, it was just closed door after closed door. He wanted to go east, but God was sending him west. He wanted to go into Asia, but God was sending him back into Europe. In these opening couple of verses, there's something so Christ-like in Paul's attitude here. It reflects something of the hours before Christ died. We read of this in John 14, that despite the imminent death that Christ faced, he tells his disciples, don't be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled, we read in the first verse. Jesus, on the night he was going to be betrayed, with the fear and everything else that would surround him, he cared about those that were around him. And it's interesting from Jesus' point of view in this, because we're told that Jesus was deeply troubled. So it's not like Jesus just wasn't affected. He wasn't some robot that doesn't feel emotion, that didn't understand the severity of the situation because he absolutely did. But he was able to see through that situation. And I think it's important maybe to put a pause on it for a second. And it can be easy to look at what we said last week, what we said this week, that 
it looks like I'm demeaning difficult situations. That you should just take out all emotion and go, I'm, yeah. I'm not trying to say that we take a step back and your situation doesn't matter. Because of course it does. Of course there is emotion. Of course there is difficulty. Of course there are things that we struggle with. Jesus himself was troubled. It's natural to be concerned. It's natural to feel worry, to feel fear during difficult situations. But the point is we have to be able to look outside of that. We have to be able to see more. And Paul found reasons to be joyful amongst that. Like Jesus, Paul was more concerned about others than his own comfort. We see a man here that is practicing what he preaches. He knew that blessing was going to come from the trials and the hardship. And that is what Paul is getting at in these verses. The chains that bound Paul actually released him. His chains became a way of spreading the gospel. He writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9, For which I suffer hardship, even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but the word of God is not chained. He didn't complain about being in prison. He saw the opportunity that came with the hardship that was in front of him. He saw that actually the rubbish that surrounded him could be used for the glory of God. And I think there's a real big challenge for us in there. Maybe you have some kind of health problem, for example, and you have to start visiting the GP, visiting the hospital or something. And when that's the case, hospitals, GPs can be really depressing places when that's all that we seem to see. We feel disheartened when we go. But actually, if we go into it with this attitude, we ask, where are my opportunities when I'm there? Where can I find opportunities in the situations that I don't want to be in? Because you know what? There's a whole new group of people that you're going to come into contact with that if it wasn't for whatever reason sent you there, you might not meet that group of people. Maybe you've lost your job and you have free time during the day. Again, there's a whole new group of people that you meet in your interactions that if you're working nine to five, you wouldn't meet. Maybe there's a tough family situation. I'm sure we've all got family circumstances we can relate to. But there's always a way of showing Christ. There is opportunity to show Christ in all of those situations. You know, Paul's chains gave him contact with the lost. They gave him contact with people that did not know Christ. And I think this is really interesting. But Paul was physically chained to a Roman soldier. I don't know about you, but if I was that soldier, and you've been hearing about this Paul guy that speaks about Jesus, I'm not going to be very impressed. 24 hours a day. They took six hour shifts. So Paul had an opportunity to speak to four guards a day. You imagine that. He writes all these letters. He's the same guy that says pray without ceasing. So if he's not praying, if he's not writing a letter, he's preaching to you. All the time he's going on about Jesus. It's interesting because they weren't ordinary soldiers either. They're the imperial guards. They're an elite unit. They're bodyguards. 
to the Roman emperors. Again, guys, that Paul is a free man would never have been able to come into contact with. And what's incredible is as we read, it wasn't long before these soldiers started seeing Christ in all of his glory. Because of Paul's case in Rome, he came into contact with officials. He came into contact with guards. The government were going to have to decide the status of Christianity in society. What is Christianity? Is it dangerous? Is it a new sect of Judaism? What is it? And I bet Paul was laughing this whole time. Because the only way for them to find out what Christianity was all about was to study. Was to read and find out for themselves. So Paul's like, come on. We're having to put Bibles. We're having to put documents. We're having to put letters, statements of faith. Everything in front of these guys. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak without fear. The guards were coming to Jesus. The people that Paul was coming into contact with were seeing Jesus, were becoming believers. But they had real confidence in it. They had real confidence in the faith. Why? Because they'd seen Paul. Because they'd seen Paul live a life that meant he did what he said he would do. We're ambassadors. We're examples. Everywhere we go, everything that we do, we are examples of the faith that we profess. Even when we're struggling, even when we're facing difficulties, we are still representatives of Christ. What a challenge that is. We'll move on into verses 15 to 19. The next two points are a bit quicker, it's alright. I'm not going to be here all night. <laughs> we look at the critics that Paul has. And at first reading of this, it's kind of crazy. Because we're reading of this Paul that's doing all this work, that's advancing the gospel. And somehow, there's other Christians that just aren't getting it. There's other Christians that are trying to attack Paul and what he's doing. I think there's something a little bit almost unbelievable, a little bit unbelievable about the passage. That Paul is winning souls for Jesus. That the new believers round about him were being encouraged. And it's just a bit difficult to get. But Paul recognises, it's interesting that he includes it in the letter as well. And we spoke last week about the relationship that Paul has with the Philippians. And this is something of that. Something of the openness, something of the honesty that he has with them. Because he now comes in with the negative. So this is a real good indicator that Paul wasn't just highlighting the good stuff to them. But he was being totally open and honest with them. He shared everything. So what this is saying is that there are mixed motives going on in the increasing of preaching in and around Rome, in and around the area. 
Paul isn't talking about false teachers because he would read later on that Paul's rejoicing in it. Paul would have nothing to do with false teachers. There would be nothing to rejoice in whatsoever. But in verse 18, we read of that. What does it mean that somebody's preaching out of rivalry? I think most likely it means that these guys are like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to preach the best sermon of my life because while Paul's locked up, I'm going to get his position. I'm going to be the new authority. No longer is Paul going to be a pillar of the church, but now it's going to be me. I'm just going to pass by Paul and be the new head honcho. And I think that's really interesting. That to bypass him, what did they do? They preached the gospel more. So what Paul's telling us here is that although these guys' motives wasn't great, they were still preaching the gospel. And they were preaching the gospel more and more. And what happened in turn? More people came to know Jesus. So people are getting annoyed at Paul. Therefore, are preaching the gospel more. Therefore, more people are becoming Christians. And Paul's just like, hallelujah. I don't care about these motives. I don't care what they're trying to do because they're preaching Jesus. It tells us that these preachers wanted to afflict Paul whilst he was in prison. To afflict means to pressure, to cause friction. Instead of asking, do you love Jesus? These guys were asking, are you on our side? Or are you on Paul's side? I love it was politics. Politics, church politics can be such a dangerous thing and absolutely still exists in church today. And I think the challenge in there is to examine ourselves, to examine our own hearts. Is there selfish ambition in your life? Is there an ambition that doesn't care who it hurts? There's a great story of two, of probably the greatest ever English evangelists. Two guys, uh, George Whitfield and John Wesley. Two phenomenal guys that saw thousands come to the Lord. But they had some disagreements. But when we talk about them, disagreements, there were minor things. One of them was an Arminian, one was a Calvinist. But they were both like here. <laughs> like there was no distance between them. And they would just debate and rattle scripture off each other for ages and ages and ages. But both men's ministries were clearly blessed by God as they saw so many come to him. And it's reported that somebody asked Wesley if he expected to see Whitfield in heaven. And Wesley replied, no, I don't. And the person replied, then you don't think Whitfield is a converted man? Of course he's a converted man, Wesley said. But I do not expect to see him in heaven because he will be so close to the throne of God and so far away from me, I will not be able to see him. I think this is a really good story of two men that had a little bit of a difference. But you know what? They recognised what God was doing. And these critics, these other preachers, if they were more Christ-like in their mentality, would be somewhere in about that. Would be able to do something like this. Paul grew in his time in prison. And he grew in the criticism that he faced. From within the church, not even outside. That's our first two ways. Paul uses his chains, he uses his circumstance, 
He uses the people that are attacking him to advance the gospel in Rome. And finally, we come to the crisis that Paul faces. There's two options for Paul. Simply, he lives or he dies. It's a crisis, I think. I'd say it's a really big crisis. Paul doesn't really seem to be that bothered, but it's a massive crisis. It depends on a court decision, if he lives or if he dies. Yes, there was a kind of a preliminary hearing that went well, that went in his favour, but that doesn't necessarily mean a lot. It was very possible that Paul would be found a traitor in Rome and be executed. But Paul's body, he says, was not his own. His only desire was to magnify Christ. The New King James Version, verse 20, uses the word magnify instead of honour. And I think in this passage, in this context, I think that's a lot better. Um, I think it's a lot better fit. I think, it's, I think it goes a lot better. And it brings an interesting question. Does Jesus need to be magnified? Jesus, the Son of God, everything around us belongs to him. Everything that could ever be, anything of any importance, everything that is good belongs to him. Does he need to be magnified? After all, how can we sinful beings magnify this God? I really like this analogy that says the stars are much bigger than a telescope. But the telescope magnifies the stars and brings them closer. Our bodies are to be like telescopes that bring Jesus Christ close to people. To bring those words from last week, to be single-minded, to be focused Christians, means that Christ is with us here and now. (coughs) Paul's central aim, his purpose, is that Christ would be magnified in his body. We often hear this verse, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does it mean? It means that God is magnified. To live a life of fruitful labor, to live a life that obeys God is a life that magnifies Christ. The fruit, the fruit is the glory of God. And the fruit of Paul's labor is to see an increase in the faith of the Philippians, in the church, of the unchurched, and of the world. If they embrace Christ, Christ is magnified. And Paul's life is proving its purpose. If Paul is to live, then his purpose is to let Christ be magnified in his body. He's saying, I want to be so close to Jesus, I don't want this body to be mine. I want this body to be Jesus. He wants his life to be a telescope, to be a mirror, to be the light. All of these great biblical analogies. He wants to be the light that shines in the darkness. He wants to live as Christ, to make Christ known to others so that they can see his magnificence. That's where Paul gets his joy. 
When you have that, when you have the, the magnification of God is your purpose, your joy will never waver. In a couple of chapters time, Philippians 3, he says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Take everything. Take everything from me because I want Jesus that much. I don't care about anything else. My goodness, I want to be there. I want to be in a place where that is wholeheartedly my desire. I don't know about you, but I feel really far away from that. I feel really far away from this idea that I'm ready to let go of absolutely anything in my life so that Christ can be magnified. To die is to be with Christ. So Paul's totally cool with this. The sooner he dies, the sooner he goes to see Jesus. Amen and hallelujah. What we lose in death is nothing. Absolutely nothing compared to the glory and the magnificence of entering into the presence of Christ. I love this little quote from John Piper. He just says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Christ is most magnified in us, most glorified in us when we are more satisfied in him than what we lose in death and what we have in life. If that makes sense. So everything that we lose when we die, everything that we have now, we're to count as nothing compared to the satisfaction we have in God. You see, those unfaceable situations, those mornings you can't get out of bed because the weight of the world is on your shoulders, those days when there looks like there is no hope, there is hope. There is hope and there is a better future. The challenge is to be satisfied in Christ. I love Victoria massively, but I will never find true satisfaction in Victoria. I love this church, but I will never find true satisfaction in this church. I will never find true satisfaction in anything in life other than in Christ, and neither will you. It's all about Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. Get rid of everything. It's all about Jesus. Cast everything onto him. In those dark days, in those dark moments, in those difficult situations, cry out to God because God wants to hear from you. Only Christ is enough and only Christ will satisfy If you look at the stuff that Paul's been through, nothing would have got him through that. Nothing would have got him through those circumstances except his faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing will get us through our circumstances 
and what we have to go through but Jesus. The goal of our life should be to magnify Christ in everything that we do. I don't need to re-emphasize this challenge, but Christ must be everything to us. We must seek to radiate Christ in everything that we do. There is nothing greater than living a life that magnifies Jesus. Paul would have taken any punishment. He did take many punishments to see Jesus glorified, to see him magnified. Paul would have and did offend anybody for the gospel. And I love this. I love this about our God, that it's never too late for us. If you feel disconnected from this, if you feel disconnected from the desire to follow God with everything that you have, it's never too late. It's never too late to commit yourself to him. It is never too late to acknowledge how far short you fall of him and ask God to ignite the passion. Ask God to ignite that desire for him, maybe for the first time or maybe again. Just beg. Get on your knees before God and say, God, I need you. There is nothing more than you. Let's pray. Lord God, what a challenge you pose to each and every one of us. Would you show us in the days and the weeks ahead those moments to magnify you, those moments to share you, those moments to lift you high when we don't. Lord, in those places and those situations we don't want to be in, would you help us see you in those moments? Would you help us to glorify you in those moments, no matter how difficult that looks? You are an incredible God. You deserve so much more than we can ever give you. Thank you for loving us. Amen.